So, it's probably been very evident to you in our service this morning. We need to talk about love. Particularly this morning, I need to ask you the same question that Amy asked the boys and girls. What do you love? Take a moment to think about that. What's most dear to you? What brings you joy when you have it? And what makes you most despondent or angry if someone takes it from you or denies it to you? What is your precious? This is just about the most important question I could ask you because I'm your pastor. I'm inviting you to find life in Jesus Christ, to follow him and to be his disciple. And that's why we need to talk about love. What do you love? Just about the most important question I could ask you. Maybe, maybe you're nervous about all of this and, and you're, you're saying, wait a minute, we come here to church to, to read the Bible uh, and to, to learn how to think better so that we might learn to believe different things, different things about God and ourselves. The, the most important question, Christoph, you should be asking us is, is what we're thinking or what we're believing not what we love. Well, let's test that idea in the laboratory of real life for a second. Do you ever find yourself thinking things and believing things and yet being unable to act on them? That New Year's resolution in January, that diet you wanted to start last month, that promise or commitment that you've made either to yourself or to other people, that you just can't keep? You've, you've thought about it and you, and you think this, this is going to help me or somebody else. You, you believe that this is going to do good. You've decided to do them, but you don't do them. Why is that? I fail to do what I think I should to do. do. I, I fail to act in, on what I say I believe. What I think and what I believe aren't changing me. Why is that? The truth is, and this might come as a surprise to you, you might never have thought about it before. The truth is, at our deepest level, human beings don't do what we know we ought to do. Instead, we do what we want to do. This isn't a new idea. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, had this to say already in the fourth century. We are shaped most by what we love, more than what we think or believe. Folks, if, if this is true, then this really matters in a church like ours, which is interested in discipleship. If we're going to talk here about following Jesus and, and try to do that simply because we've read it, in the Bible, and we think it's what God wants us to do, then we're going to struggle. Even if we've come to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus died for us and, and, and have some sense that we should follow him, I think we're going to be creating some pretty half-hearted disciples. What we want here is lovers. A community of people who, when they're asked the question which we have here, what do you love? What's most dear to you? What is your precious? They answer without a moment's hesitation. 
I love Jesus Christ. The life that he's given me is precious to me. I live out of that. One modern author, James K. Smith, he's put it like this in the title of a book. He said, we are what we love. Whatever we love, whatever we set our hearts on, whatever we worship, that we become. So far in our series in Deuteronomy, we've heard Moses' call to choose life, to choose a better future, to choose your calling, and to choose freedom. This morning in uh, chapter 6, these opening verses of chapter 6, we're going to hear Moses' invitation to, to think about where we place our affections and to choose love. You have your passage open before you. Verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. They're some of the most central words in the whole of the Bible. You, you, might, have, you might have been aware of that as we, we read them. They just they feel so absolutely crucial. If you went to a, an Orthodox Jewish synagogue today, well, yesterday, you'd find people still to this day reciting the Shema every week in the Jewish worship service. The, the Jewish name Shema is the Hebrew for the first word of this command. Hear, O Israel. That command to hear, it's common right throughout Deuteronomy, common right throughout the Old Testament. It has the feel of a parent grabbing the child's attention. The parent's about to say something important to the child, something for the child's own good. Listen up, this is really important, Shema. Okay, Moses, well, what is it? What, what is it that's important? What is it you want us to, to hear and to listen up to? Look at verse 5. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses wants the people to be thinking about God. And what does he mean? The Lord is, is one. Well, if, if you read the commentaries, you'll see slightly different emphases. One, one will emphasize that the, the Lord is is singular, that is, the God of Israel isn't like some of the, the gods who are a conglomeration of minor deities all rolled into one. That, that would have been the case in some of the surrounding nations. No, our God is one. Another view is that the phrase draws attention to God's integrity, that is, that he's consistent with himself. He's not in two minds. There's no divine schizophrenia. And a third view is that the emphasis calls, falls on God's incomparability. There's no one like him. Whenever he sums up these views, Chris Wright says that Yahweh alone was God in the covenant relationship with Israel. Yahweh has done what no other God has done or could do, that Yahweh is one and not many. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I don't know if they still sing the song at football matches, but they used to celebrate a player from the terraces with the chorus, there's only one Norman Whiteside, one Norman Whiteside. Maybe you've been to a football match and you've sung that song. I don't want to trivialize the Shema even a fraction, but it has a ring of that to me. There's only one Lord our God, one Lord our God. 
he's great and we celebrate him. He's out on his own. No one like him. I, I've loved it. I, I always love it. I've loved it already today when in our service we have had our congregational singing and we've begun to sound at moments a bit like the cop at Windsor Park celebrating our hero. He scored the most beautiful, glorious winner. There's only one Jesus Christ, one Jesus Christ. If you find yourself moved to celebrate him like that, praise God. Praise God, you're beginning to get it. Moses has gone to great lengths to get Israel's attention. Hear, O Israel. He's reminded them of the greatness of the God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's he getting at? How does he want these people to respond to this glorious, one-of-a-kind God? Verse 5, love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's all about love. This morning, we're going to spend our remaining time thinking about three aspects of love. First, that God's word calls us to love. Second, that Jesus calls us to love. And third, we'll think about the life of love. So first of all, this, let's notice that God's word calls us to love. I'd like to show you this by showing you that this call here in chapter 6 isn't an isolated command in Deuteronomy. Let's flick a wee bit and see. Flick over to chapter 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But you, that you fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. Look, look down at 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. Verse 13. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him. There are plenty more invitations to love God right throughout Deuteronomy. But let me take what I think is the best of the lot, the command to love God that's right at the heart of this whole book. Uh, it's become our, our theme verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 19. Do you remember our memory verse from last week? Moses said, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. Okay, I'm going to warn you where we're going with this memory verse over the next few weeks. One way of teaching a kid memory verses, maybe you've experienced this yourself, is that some of the words start to disappear on the slide. Do you remember that way? Yeah, that's where we're going with this. This is the last time you're going to see the slide with all the words. So let's, let's say it together just now and start to, to try over these next weeks to, to bring this part of God's word into our hearts. Moses said, I have set before you life and death, 
blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and fold fast to him for the Lord is your life. Yes, thank you. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. Isn't that something, what Moses says here? Choose love for God because that is to choose life. The Lord is our life. Folks, we're learning that God's word calls us to love. Because of who God is and because of who we are, our love must be total. Moses calls the people to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Because he's unique, because he's complete, because of his wholeness and oneness, we can't be half-hearted in our response to God. It's got to be total. We're called to love him with the whole of who we are. One way of dealing with the text here would be to do some sort of a detailed analysis of, of the meaning of the word heart and of soul and of strength. But I want to, to save you that today. Heart, when Moses uses that word, it means something different for him. It's more than an organ that pumps the blood. It's something like your will and your intentions. Whenever he uses the word soul, he means the whole inner self our emotions and our desires, our personal characteristics. It's like the whole of you, the whole of your life. So to love God with your heart and with your soul means your whole self, your, your rational, your mental capacities, your moral choices, your will, your inner feelings, your desires, your whole life. And as if that wasn't enough, in the Shema, Moses uses a third remarkable idea, the Hebrew word meod, translated here as strength. That's not even, like in the Hebrew, that's not even a noun. It's not, it's not the strength. Normally it's used as, as an adverb. It means to do something greatly or exceedingly. And it, it probably makes most sense to see this word as a multiplier or an, an intensifier. It brings the other two to a climax. So the Shema, love the Lord your God with the total commitment of your heart, with the total self of your soul to absolute excess. Our love, says Moses, should be total and overflowing. Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love. That's why I can call you to, to celebrate the living God the way you would do if you were at a pop concert or, or at a football stadium. Whatever moves you, whatever excites you, whatever loves you, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Folks, we've seen then that God's word calls us to love. Whenever I introduced Deuteronomy a few weeks ago, I, I was trying to make a case for why this book is important. And one of the things we said about Deuteronomy is that it's a book that Jesus loved. So if we're disciples of Jesus, if we want to understand him, to get him, then we need to come to grips with Deuteronomy. What we discover when we pay attention to Jesus is that he reaffirms much of the teaching of Deuteronomy, particularly on this subject here today. 
So not only does God's word call us to love, Jesus calls us to love. Turn with me, Matthew 22, page 991. In that passage, what we're going to find is that Jesus quotes from the Shema. A Pharisee, an expert in the law, has come to him. He wants to test him with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Of the 613 commandments that we recognize in God's word, which one is the most important one? What's the most important thing we need to know about God's law? Remember what we said last week, by the way? The law in Israel isn't a statutory law code. It's not institutional. It's relational. The God who loves his people makes a covenant with them, and he, he gives them these laws to safeguard, to keep them free, actually, to live lives of love. So the lawyer's question about the greatest command really means, what do we need to know if we're to keep walking in God's ways, keep enjoying a good relationship with him, accepting the life that he offers us, that's easy, Jesus says. Takes the audience straight to the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with the total commitment of your heart, with the total self of your soul. Love him with your mind. Love him to total excess. Love God totally. So folks, loving God, to use Moses' language, is the way to choose life. Jesus frames it slightly differently. Jesus says, loving me is the key to discipleship. Flick over with me to John chapter 14, page 1082. This time, Jesus isn't in the public place debating with the lawyer. This time, he's in the private place with his disciples in the upper room the night before he dies. And he's talking with them about the quality of life that he is inviting them to. Look at what he says. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. For most of my life, I'd understood this statement as a command. It's as though Jesus is saying, right, now that we're all together here, the stakes are high, let's get serious. You say that you love me, then do the things I tell you. I'd always understood this verse as a, as a command about keeping commandments. Now, I'm sure that Jesus does want us to keep his commandments. But I'm not sure that that's what he's saying here in this verse. This is not a command about keeping commandments. I don't think this is primarily a command at all. Have another look at that verse and read it more as a statement of fact. If you love me, you'll naturally want to do what I've commanded. If you respect me, you'll want to follow my example to be my disciple, to be an apprentice learning from me how to live. If you love me, you'll admire me, you'll want to follow in my footsteps and become like me. 
You see, Jimmy Smith is right. We are or we become what we love. If we love Jesus, we'd start to do the things that he did and we'll start to be very like him. We've seen now that God's word calls us to love, that Jesus calls us to love. Let's spend the last few moments thinking about this life of love. Nobody's taught me more about this relationship between love for Jesus and discipleship to Jesus than Dallas Willard. In his masterful book, Relevation of the Heart, he talks about the mistake that we make when we try to be followers of Jesus without first coming to love him. This could be a big moment for you today when you realize why the Christian life often hasn't made any sense to you. Perhaps you've tried to be a Christian, to live some sort of a life that you feel is expected of you, but you've tried to do it without love, loving Jesus. When he's talking about the great New Testament passages that describe how we're transformed into the likeness of Jesus, Willard says this, people assume that we're supposed to do all the glowing things mentioned in such passages without first loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, we think we must try to do them while our heart, soul, mind, and strength are still strongly inclined in the opposite direction. And of course, their despair is totally justified. What they are thinking would be completely impossible. To the person who's not inwardly transformed, evil and sin still look good. To such people, the law is hateful because it denies them what they have their hearts set on. And everything must be done to evade the law, to do what they want. The force of their whole being is set against Christ-likeness, even if they do suffer from a bad conscience that tells them they're in the wrong. Willard continues, and he explains what happens when we learn to love God, when we apprentice ourselves truly to Jesus Christ. As Jesus trains us, all of that begins to reverse. The law begins to appear as a beautiful gift from God, as precious truth about what's really good and right. It becomes, in the language of the psalmist, sweeter than honey freshly dripping from the honeycomb. At this point, it's sin that looks stupid, ridiculous, as well as repulsive, which it actually is. Resistance to sin is based on a new and realistic vision of what it is, and not on fear of punishment. The illusion that sin is really a good thing, arbitrarily prohibited by God, is dispelled. We see with gratitude that his prohibitions are among his greatest kindnesses. I'm almost finished, but let me share a little more Willard continues in this same chapter to point out some of the characteristics or marks of a person who's learned to love God with heart, soul, and strength. I'll share four of them. 
He says of these people, whenever they're found to be in the wrong, they never defend it, neither to themselves and much less to others or God. They're thankful to be found out. They know what it is to be justified by grace alone. This reality has penetrated every core of their being and they rest there in their human relationships as well as their relationship with God. Listen to this one. A second mark of God lovers, they don't feel that they're missing out when they're not sinning. Wow. Can you imagine that? When they're not sinning, they're not disappointed. They don't feel deprived. They don't feel anymore that sin is something desirable. They know that sin is slop. Why stick your head or your body or your soul into that? A third mark of the God lovers, they're they're governed mostly by the pull of good. Their energy is no longer invested in not doing bad things. They're learning to do what is good. Whatever desires they might have for what God has forbidden, they're regarded as ridiculous, not something to be taken seriously. The good is the only thing worth considering. And a final mark of the God lovers for now. Life in God's will and God's ways becomes easy and joyful for them. It's a burden. Their their walk with Christ, the gift of the law, it's a burden to them only as wings are to a bird or engines to an airplane. Folks, isn't that just wonderful? You're not called to a life of grim obedience to a law that you hate. You're called to a life of love for a God who loved you and gave his life for you. So back to our question. What do you love? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love Jesus, God's son, who loved you and gave his life for you? If you do, And to the extent that you do, you will become what you love. And by the way, I see you lovers here today in our church family and in this gathering. I I see people who have begun to see that Jesus is beautiful. And so you're freed from that pressure of curating and projecting images of your own beauty to the people around you on on social media. You don't need that because you know that he's beautiful. I've seen those of you who have come to see that Jesus is smart, that he's worth listening to. When we open God's word together, you're all ears because you know that he's far more far more wise than the best newspaper analyst or the most influential blogger. You're all ears to his wisdom. There are people here who are finding in Jesus Christ their hero, the person they most admire, most emulate, most want to live with and for. So Kim Kardashian and Justin Bieber and other celebrity lifestyles, quite honestly, don't mean a whole lot to us anymore. They're just not that interesting. 
because we love him. Why give our lives to them when we could give our lives for the one who came to give us life? You see, folks, Jimmy Smith, Augustine, and Moses long before him were right. We are what we love. We become what we worship. So let's choose love. Love for the living God. Love for his son revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Let's love him with the total commitments of our hearts, the total self of our soul. And, and let's love him with our minds. Let's love him to total excess. Love him totally. Choose love and live. Let's pray.